this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning and welcome to worship. My name is Meg McGuire and I am the ministerial intern this year at the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. And I'm so grateful that all of you are here today. A special welcome to any of you who are joining us for the first time. If this is your first time, I encourage you to download the order of service, which you can find on our website or in the description of this video so that you can follow along throughout the service. We also hope you'll consider joining us after worship for our Zoom coffee hour, where you can connect with others in this community. We are marking and holding a lot together this morning. Today is National Coming Out Day, and so with others today, we especially honor the courage and struggle of all of us in this community and beyond who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, asexual, intersex, non-binary, or perhaps beyond the categories of the acronym. Tomorrow, as you may know, is Indigenous Peoples Day, an official holiday here in San Francisco and in more and more cities around the country as a result of decades of organizing by indigenous people and non-native accomplices. Truly a movement among of many movements. And it is a day where we are called to acknowledge the legacies of colonialism and its lasting consequences for indigenous communities. It is also a day where we are invited to celebrate and honor the past, present, and future of indigenous people throughout the United States. This morning, we'll be exploring the impact of the stories we tell, sometimes carelessly or out of habit, and the impact of pausing to tell new stories with a bit more room inside of them. So we pause this morning in recognition that this religious community, this city, where many of us make our home, rests on the ancestral territory of the Ramatush Ohlone. We pause this morning in the discomforting truth that we are gathered on the sacred land of others not by coincidence, but as a result of the systematic dispossession of peoples from their land. We make this acknowledgement as one small way that we might begin to tell a different story. One small way that we can embody a commitment to transform the legacies of colonialism through concrete acts of solidarity, healing, and reparation. Our offering this morning will go to support the American Indian Education Fund in honor of Dana Renee Gooden, the cousin of Nora Kato, who is a member of this community. Dana died this last August at 33 years of age. She was an amazing woman and a proud member of the Comanche Nation. And we are grateful to be able to honor her life through supporting the work of the American Indian Education Fund. So thank you for being with us this morning. I also want to give a special thanks to everyone who is essential in bringing this service together 
our AV and sound expert, Jonathan Silk, Shu Li Ong and Eric Shackelford on our cameras, Joe Chapeau, who is monitoring our chat and social media, our sexton this morning, Thomas Brown, and our organist, Reiko Odelaine, Mark Sumner, our music director, our pianist, Bill Garcia Gans, and Kramer Dahl, supporting on the clubs. Our soloists this morning, Sarah Rose Cohen, Brielle Marina Nielsen, Ben Rudiak Gold, and Asher Davis. Thank you also to Alex Dar, who will be hosting our Zoom coffee hour after the service, and Carrie Steer Salazar for the beautiful flowers this morning. And of course, Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern, our newly settled senior minister, who will be leading us in worship this morning. And I want to acknowledge all of you who are joining us this morning via live stream by lighting our blue candle, as we've done every Sunday for the last six months. And with the kindling of this flame, we bring your spirit into this place until such time that we may gather here together again. of our chalice lighting, they are printed in your order of service. 
We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Hello, I am Vanessa Southern, the newly settled senior minister of this congregation, which I have to say felt a little different this week. It's funny how rites of passage actually do work their magic. You wouldn't think that would surprise a minister, but it did. I'm so glad to be with all of you on this journey, as complicated and beautiful as it is always. If this is your first time watching us, we want to make sure you feel welcomed and make sure you didn't miss the invitation to download the order of service, which is so rich, both with how you can follow along in worship and participate, but also with lots of announcements, with the link to our Zoom coffee hour after service, which offers a chance to connect with folks, and we thank Alex Starr for overseeing that. Please feel free to plug into any and everything that is listed here. Sign up to get our newsletter and our weekly flame, which is our weekly set of announcements and upcoming events. I want to point out that a lot of the programs coming up are beginning to focus on issues related to the election, not surprisingly, and what's at stake. We have our Wednesday Rush Hour Witness, which I especially want to call you all to, where you can make your own placard of what you want the folks driving by in front of our busy street in front of the church to think about and to hold up, particularly these days, as they prepare to vote, as they reflect on the future of our life. Today, after church, there's an amazing group meeting to discuss the future of our nation around the church-state separation, Saturday at 11, another fabulous event. The book group that I'm leading will come up later in this month. It's focused on Bill Bryson's book, The Body, but I do want to call your attention in advance to November's book, which is Cast. It's going to be a three-week book club. That means we're going to break the book down so we can really sit with Isabel Wilkerson's ideas which are supposed to be deeply challenging and invitational and transformative, and so we want to dig deep. So I hope you'll get the book and start reading and think about joining in November, too. And there are all sorts of other opportunities. Opportunities for the arts and creative engagement with the arts in these times, which can be deeply feeding other spiritual practices to help ground you, and opportunities to do the most important things we always are called to do, like feeding the hungry. So please, please participate. Dive in. As Meg said, the offering today is going to a fantastic cause, the American Indian Education Fund, and there's more about that in your order of service if you'd like to read more about it. So be ready at the time of the offering, or you can do it anytime, to do an online giving with the button that invites you to do that, but to mark your gifts special offering so we know exactly what you intended when you made those gifts as we process them later in the week. Thank you. I want to invite us now to center ourselves as we do each week in this 
meditative singing and breathing exercise that we do. The words of the meditation on breathing are in your order of service. Please follow along with our song leaders and let yourself get lost in them for a little while to bring yourself fully to this time and this place, deep into your body and into the purposes for which we gather. Welcome. I'll breathe in peace when I breathe out. I'll breathe out love when I breathe in. I'll breathe in peace when I breathe out. I'll breathe out love when I breathe in. Join me now in reciting our covenant. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong this morning in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. 
We ring our gong first as we have since July of 2019. In honor of the seven children who have lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps, and we let its ringing stand symbolically for those adults who have also lost their lives in these camps, those who remain in them, many separated from their families and many now infected by COVID-19 or at great risk of infection. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19, the virus whose symptoms we know by heart and that has affected us all. This week, 44,437 people died of COVID-19 globally and 5,794 died from the virus in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses and all whose recovery from the virus is slow and uncertain, all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential services, who've lost a job and suffer from economic uncertainty, those who are at particular vulnerability to the infection, and everyone who struggles increasingly with isolation and grief and loneliness the longer the pandemic continues. Finally, we ring our gong once also. This Sunday, for all those Native and Indigenous, GLBTQ and other, all whose humanity in all its fullness has been disregarded, all whose lives have been threatened or lost, forced into barren landscapes both literal and those of the mind and the heart and the spirit. For all their suffering and the collective loss to us all because of this legacy, we ring our gong. So much to remember and to hold So may we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our continued prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
Reverend Tet Giardo describes prayer as an articulated common dream. So I invite you to join me in that spirit, in naming a dream together. Spirit of life, abiding love beyond our naming. We come together this Sunday and every Sunday, a people with a vision made up of many visions, with shared longing for a world that fully honors every single person, that fully values the interdependent whole. In the midst of turbulence and disorienting uncertainty, in a time where we can find ourselves constantly reacting, jumping from crisis to crisis, we take this moment to pause. Spirit of life, open our hearts, widen our view. Help us to perceive anew that which has been rendered invisible, that which is hard to see, much less to feel. Deepen our ability to hold that complexity, the discomforting weight of truth, and let discomfort lead us not into shame or despair, but into a renewed commitment. May we remember our way forward. As we remember, we hold space for those whose stories have been lost to history, covered over or willfully omitted. Those whose stories have been muted, distorted or suppressed. We hold space for everyone in our community and beyond for whom the simple act of being oneself has sometimes been contested. We hold space for any for whom being fully known remains a struggle. May we ground in the gifts of our distinctiveness, honoring the multitudes within each one of us inviting each one of us to be full and complex and beautiful as we are. Knowing that from this place, the whole can be more full and complex and beautiful too. May we create together a world where everyone can belong where no one need make themselves smaller, less vibrant or less true to their core, where every single person can be witnessed, known and loved, where our fundamental interdependence is more deeply felt and our mutual thriving more fully realized. For this, and the silent prayers in our hearts this morning, in this silence we pray.
May our dreaming alone and together bring some solace in times of heartbreak and be a compass that may guide our way forward. May it be so. This we know, the earth does not belong to us, we belong to the earth. This we know, we did not weave the web of life, we are merely a strand in it. This we know. Another thing we know now is that those beautiful words that our soloists just performed, words that for years have been attributed to a famous 1854 speech by Chief Seattle, a historic indigenous leader from the Pacific Northwest. Those words were in fact written by a screenwriter named Ted Perry. Perry's words, made famous by a TV movie in the 70s, have since made their way into books and onto environmental blogs. They've inspired sermons and formed the basis for children's books. They're even found on t-shirts and bumper stickers, and of course in songs like the one we just heard. Consistently, they're attributed to Chief Seattle an anglicization of Chief Siach. 
there's a decent amount of scholarship that traces how this widespread misconception came to be. Chief Siach did give a passionate speech in 1854, responding to pressure for his people to cede their land to the US government. One of the eyewitnesses that day, a poet and doctor named Henry Smith, did take notes, but Smith's grasp on Chief Siach's native Lushotzid was a little less than perfect. He'd only been with the Duwamish people for about a year, and he didn't write up his notes for another 33 years. Several adaptations emerged from Smith's version, changing a bit each time, like a game of telephone. And finally, one of those was the inspiration for Perry, who pinned a rousing environmental appeal for his version of Chief Seattle to offer in a film. The speech then stripped of its attribution to Perry by the producer, who wished it to have the illusion of greater authenticity and the real Chief Siach starts to vanish behind white people's use of him. There wasn't malice or conspiracy in this, a creative liberty, a little exaggeration, a consistent neglect of sourcing. But this chain of seemingly innocuous decisions, situated in unchecked bias and devoid of critical context, together proved painfully consequential, reducing a historic indigenous leader to a cinematic caricature. It's not a pattern we want to repeat. There's no doubt that the picture of Chief Seattle painted in Ted Perry's speech is an appealing one. The very ubiquity of these words speaks, I think, to some kind of collective longing for a grounded prophetic voice on behalf of our planet, some older wisdom that could carry us through this time of climate disruption. It hints too at the appeal of a visionary indigenous leader, maybe even an unspoken desire to know and to mourn for what we all know or suspect was lost in the brutal genocide of the indigenous peoples of these lands. All of this brings so many good questions to the fore, doesn't it? Just this one example, this one grappling. All of the habits to break, all the questions we need to ask the levels of accounting our nation will need to do for a truly honest telling, an honest relationship with our past. Rather than putting Chief Siach up on a pedestal, creating some kind of fictionalized account of his life and his words, what if we name what we do know and start there? how Chief Siachi's people were ravaged by smallpox, measles, and other diseases introduced by Europeans in the 80 years after contact. Or the treaty that was signed a year after Siachi's historic 1854 speech in which his people 
did cede the land we now know as Seattle over to the US government. Or the larger history this all ties into of the United States' systematic dispossession of peoples from their land. And we know that Chief Siach's story does not end with that speech, or even with his death in 1866. When you search for the Duwamish people, what you find just below the name of the website that leads you to them are these words in all caps. We are still here. Our offering this morning will go to the American Indian Education Fund in honor of Dana Renee Gooden. You can read more about the good work of the fund and about Dana on page four of your order of service. The offering will now be given and gratefully received. Thank you for your generosity. In the quiet, misty morning, when the moon has gone to rest, when the sparrows stop their singing, and the sky is clear and
That was so beautiful. I want to thank Mark and the choir, and I think Vanessa Van Holmes' husband who helped make it possible. I feel like it's just another beautiful reminder of everything we have had to learn to do or chosen to step into with heart that's been part of this pandemic chapter of our lives. That was maybe one of the more beautiful pieces we've been asked to step into. Our reading this morning is by Joy Harjo. She's a poet, an author, a musician, also was made Poet Laureate of the United States in June of 2019. And she is a member of the Muskegee Creek Nation. The passage poem, a prose poem, is called Don't Bother the Earth Spirit. Don't bother the earth spirit who lives here. She is working on a story. It, it's the oldest story in the world and it is delicate, changing. If she sees you watching, she will invite you in for coffee, give you warm bread, and you will be obligated to stay and listen. But this is no ordinary story. You will have to endure earthquakes, lightning, the death of all those you love, the most blinding beauty. It's a story so compelling you may never want to leave. This is how she traps you. See that finger over there? That stone finger over there, that's the only one who ever escaped. Here ends our reading.
I don't know if it's an ancient Jewish teaching or Elie Wiesel who gets the credit, but it has been said that God created humanity because God loves stories. Good thing too, because it turns out that storytelling and retelling of our stories, it's a favorite human pastime. And there is the story too, the story too that we enter into as the poet Joy Harjo reminds us in her prose poem. Stories also aren't just something that we tell, are they? They have incredible power. Wiesel, who himself is a master storyteller, he knew that in a story could be evidence of nothing less than the human capacity for good, for evil, for self-transcendence, and for treachery. And so the telling of the story often with its subtle and overt messages both could serve some purpose. It instructs. All the more reason then, my friends, to pay attention to the stories we tell, the kinds of stories that we tell, and where they and we go awry in the telling, or where we go awry in falling prey to them sometimes. Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie did a TED talk in 2009 called The Danger of a Single Story. It's well worth listening to or watching if you haven't seen it already. In it, she talks about so many things, including how often and how many ways the story that gets told of a person or a people gets reduced to just one fact about them. How often people or places get essentialized, you might say, into one narrative. And she points out, too, the power that is at play into this kind of storytelling. Because the one reducing another to a single story or quality is so often exercising their power in their ability to do that. And it raises the question of who has the power to get the fullness of their own story across and whose stories are left incomplete. In the end, of course, as Meg brought us to in the prayer this morning, we all want a fuller story of our own truth, of our nation's truth, of any person to be known. We know that's a fuller, more whole humanity it allows for, but well, the powerless are not often so lucky, and there are definite consequences to their stories being essentialized, any story. But first, I think we almost have to backtrack a bit and 
ask why it is that single stories exist and admit, admit that actually there are many things about a single narrative that is appealing. A single narrative, after all, it's simple to digest, right? It, it's sort of like the carbohydrates of the moral diet, you might say. It melts in your mouth, doesn't take any brain power or choice or thought to process. It makes decisions easy, that's for sure. Understanding is super easy when you have a single narrative. You can get it and you can move on. We can sort people and places and information and move on. It doesn't take a lot of muscle. And there are a particular kind of single narratives, I think, that you and I, all of us, fall prey to. One, one that I've been thinking about more recently quite a lot, is what you might call the good-bad binary of stories. You know these stories. These are the stories in which the villains are clear and so are the heroes, right? They're super common in movies, especially in children's movies or children's books. The villains, right, we all know this. The villains in these are pretty obvious. Think uh, Maleficent the witch, right? They're unambiguously mean and repellent. They're often physically unattractive too, just in case we're missing all the other signals. The good, the good by contrast, oh my gosh, they're usually handsome and they're unfailingly kind and often they're backlit by sunshine in all of the shots. Ominous music attends the evil. The good have bird songs in the background. Recently, our family found out that Lila, our daughter, had never seen the Lord of the Ring trilogy the movies. Well, you know, in an important effort to recorrect this, we have been watching the Lord of the Tr Ring trilogy movies. One three-hour saga is about all we can get through in a given week. We're now two movies in, and I'd say the good and bad are pretty obvious in this movie. The elves, for instance, are good, right? They are peaceful, they are lovely, the orcs, on the other hand, are evil. They are brutal and they're deformed. And unless I've forgotten a twist that's coming to me in this week's installment of the third movie, I don't think I'm gonna find any evil elves or transcendently beatific orcs. And all that's well and good, right? In a, in a, Friday or Sunday night movie night. Except I want to point something out that I also noticed, which points out, I think, how much we're all paying attention more intently, differently now than maybe 10 or 20 years ago. The elves in the movie are also, by the way, if anyone thinks about this or noticed this, they're often almost entirely blonde and fair-skinned. And the orcs? They are dark-skinned, and often with distinctly, though deformed, African 
features, and some are even shown wearing strikingly African or North African-inspired clothing. We all noticed this this year. Which is to say that underneath this simplified moral fictional tale, this movie, lurks another single narrative, right? One that's being played on and it's also being reinforced. It's a larger, dangerous, simplified story of good and evil that is best understood as the evil legacy in our country of anti-blackness and the simplified judgments that it completely clears the way for, even today, right, that shows up in how a young black man is treated in a court when he comes for sentencing, or a young white man, or who gets shot in a skirmish with the police. And all because there is this underlying single story that we've learned to tolerate in the stories we tell and passively imbibe. Clearly, clearly, the stories that we tell or assent to culturally, they inform us, they inform our ideas, our choices, our beliefs, our policies. And in ways that, with the simplified stories, can be particularly dangerous. Because they always, those simple stories always leave the more deeply humanizing story, the fuller, truer story behind. So, simple stories are appealing, but we all know we have to be careful in their company, careful of the dangers that they present. Are the good, bad, or essentializing stories the only ones, and I should say, and essentializing stories, the only ones that we need to be prepared for? Pekka Hamalainen who's a Finnish man, currently a professor at Oxford University, he names this other kind of simplified story that he thinks we humans love that I want to name today as one other kind to just call our attention to. He says we humans love a story with a teleology. What does that mean? Teleology, this fantastic word with the Greek root telos, which means kind of an end or goal, and logos, reason, and together they mean this complicated idea that things, people, the world, might have a purpose built into it. And sometimes there's a sense that they are made and drawn toward that purpose, and maybe even that those ends are drawn to them, sort of this magnetic pull that makes it not inevitable, but almost inevitable. What Hamalainen means is that sometimes we tell a story as if it's predestined to end the way that it does. And that in fact, we like those kind of simplified narratives. That we often look to tell stories that way. Why? Well, be because again, it goes down easy, right? Doesn't it? 
because maybe they reassure us by implication that things must happen as they should, that dictators will eventually be overthrown, that all people in bondage will eventually be liberated, that the earth maybe will self-correct. And in telling these stories, telling them this way, falling into this trap, it's a trap in which the danger is that you and I are inappropriately liberated from any obligation to fight the odds or to ask honestly, painfully, whether things might have gone another way, whether they might go another way still. And often we don't like to consider that option. It's scary. It's so much better sometimes to have the narrative of the inevitable. Hamalainen, who wrote a book on the Comanche Empire, but also wrote Lakota America, his book on the Lakota, says people talk of the Lakota ascendancy in the West as inevitable. It's one of the narratives that gets used. But he writes, nothing less could be true. The setbacks, the massive risks, the story of ascendancy that was destined to be, he says, is, quote, too simple and easy. It has abstracted it from human experience, sanitized it of uncertainty, and drained it of meaning. We might say the same of any story with this teleological myth woven deliciously into its telling. Were the Lakota, for instance, destined also to defeat militarily? Hamalainen, who's a historian and not an apologist, writes of how the Lakota's fight was, quote, to keep alive a broader vision of America, where coexistence through right thoughts and acts might be possible. Was that inevitably a losing fight? When the Lakota had 200 years of successful alliances with the French and the British, with Spain and the United States and numerous native societies coexisting and finding a way across differences to share land. It makes me wonder what's inevitable maybe right now and who will say that it's inevitable for our nation I would argue that right now, and maybe for the Lakota too, nothing was innately inevitable. Nothing unless we divorce all people from the obligation to choose. Nothing is inevitable unless we surrender to the role of cynic and divorce our sense of responsibility. Chimananda Ngozi Adichie says of the simplified story that it robs people of their dignity. I think she's right. It robs those whose story is being told from their dignity, from, from the chance to tell the wholeness of who they are and what they brought to bear in the world. 
And in so doing, it robs us of a little bit of our dignity, the larger world listening too. It makes us complicit in what she calls the flattening of the narrative so that a person or a people or a chapter of history that deserves full hearing so that it might let its full moral tale unfold is denied the chance. Is this telling of fuller stories harder? Yes. Does it take more time? Yes. Can we do it perfectly? No. Just the explanation or attempt to explain this morning's song and the unearthing of what happened the moments a native leader in the Pacific Northwest and its indigenous communities uttered those words and the journey through their translation and fictionalization, that was super complicated and imperfect sleuthing. Mark and Meg and I had to go digging and comparing notes and we did research and we may not even have gotten it right. But in doing it, I do think we ended a little bit of the erasure of the man, the real man who the words had been attributed to for far too long. And he deserves that attempt. And we deserve the end of erasure too. All of this, it strikes me, is a new muscle that we are all increasingly gonna have to learn to exercise in our ears and our hearts and our minds to listen for what sounds like a simplified story, to wake to the fact that we're being told them way too often, to ask good interrogating questions born out of a sense of personal responsibility and love and ethical concern, and then to do the work of reweaving the stories we tell from what we learn. Because God, as Eli Wiesel says, loves stories, but I imagine she loves the good kind. <laughs> you know, the ones that are full of truth and messy details, the kind that tell of real human lives and people and history. These, after all, are the stories that truly have a chance to instruct us on the real and messy and nuanced business of life. And these are the stories that are actually worth telling and retelling through time. So pulling us back to today on the cusp of Indigenous People Day, and speaking to how this awakening sensibility is affecting the stories we tell about Native Americans, Pekka Hamalainen writes in Lakota America these words. It is only in the last few decades that Native Americans have entered history as full-fledged protagonists. Earlier, for centuries, Native people lingered in the recesses of the American imagination as a, a kind of dark matter of history. Scholars tended to look right through them into the people and things that seemed to matter more, that seemed to move history, which is to say conquistadors and monarchs and founding fathers. 
settler empires, nation states, global capitalist markets, the Indians were a hazy frontier backdrop, the necessary other whose menacing presence heightened the colonial drama of forging a new people in a new world. While persisting in popular consciousness as America's foundation myth, those stories now seem hopelessly outdated, relics of another time of different sensibilities. Today, Native Americans occupy the center stage as powerful historical actors who thwart colonial intrusions, reverse expected power dynamics, force newcomers to adapt to their way of doing things and profoundly shape the creation of a distinctly American identity. This is no ordinary story, the poet Joy Harjo says of the oldest story, our shared story, that the Earth Spirit is working on. It is delicate and changing. You will have to endure earthquakes, lightning, the death of all of those you love, the most blinding beauty. It's a story so compelling you may never want to leave. May the stories we tell be worthy of the lives that lived them. And may they be worthy of the world they shape as those stories are passed along. Amen.
our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.